Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, welcome to week six of a series that we're calling More Than Enough, where we have been studying abundance. Abundance. Abundance is God's disposition of goodness and generosity toward his creation. And over the last few weeks, that's exactly what we've been seeing. We've been seeing that that God is predisposed. He has a a disposition to bless us. He has a disposition of of divine favor. He, He has a disposition of provision. God wants to bless us. God is and wants to be more than enough. We, we spent some time, we spent some time looking at how each and every one of us, we really do long for God's blessing in our lives. Then we, looked, we took some time and we looked at the purpose of, of work in our lives. What is the purpose of work in our lives? Then we spent some time, we looked at, at God's investment in us, And we looked at the the dangers, the dangers of investing in ourselves and our hope. Our hope and prayer for this series is that each and every one of us, each and every one of us will leave here with a a deeper and a wider understanding of God's goodness. And that, that understanding, that it would profoundly affect the way that we live our lives. That God's goodness would affect the way that we live our lives. So let's pray. Father God, your your sons and your daughters were gathered here today. We're gathered here because, God, we want to worship you. We're gathered here because we love you. We want to hear from you. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would speak to us that you would not let us leave this moment unchanged. God, we pray that that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. So have you had this experience? Have you had the experience where where you graduate high school and you you move away from your hometown? 10, 10, 20 years pass and you go back to your hometown to visit your folks. And while you're in your hometown, you swing by the grocery store, and while you're there, you bump into someone you went to high school with. You bump in to Bruce. Bruce is in the frozen food aisle, and you, y'all bump into each other. And after, after a while, you catch up. You now know what's going on in each other's lives. You know about career and family. And then Bruce, Bruce looks at you, and Bruce says this, man, man, you haven't changed one bit. And then Bruce moseys on down the aisle and you are stuck there with the frozen pizza in your hand and you are wondering, what did that mean? What does that mean? What does Bruce mean I haven't changed one, one bit? Is Bruce telling me that I am aging particularly well? Or did Bruce mean that I am 42 years old? And I'm still acting and dressing like a 17-year-old. Man, you haven't changed one bit. Change is interesting. If you were to Google right now books about change, within seconds, 
you would have millions of results at your fingertips, millions. And so with this in mind, I'm going to start today with two assumptions. I'm going to start with the first assumption is that every single person in this room and online has, is, or will one day want to change something about themselves. We want to change things. And then second, my second assumption, because there are millions of books on this topic, y'all, we know we need help. We want to change and we need help. We want to change and change, change is hard. You want to be more patient. You want to be more patient. And so you're working on this, but then you open up the dishwasher. Someone else in your family has loaded it and they have had the audacity to put cups where bowls belong (laughs) and bowls where cups belong and it just rises up inside of you. You want to change, but change, change is hard. You realize that your parenting has become a little less effective than it has been and yet for the hundredth time today you find yourself in negotiation with a toddler. You are yelling at them again. You want to change and change Change is hard. You realize that you want your relationships to look different than they do right now. Because every relationship has these moments, multiple times a day, called conflict. But at every crossroads, every moment of conflict, you choose one of two paths. You choose either the verbal war or more deadly, the silent war. You want better relationships, but you know these are the two options you continually choose, and they aren't helping. You want to change, and change is hard. You want to stop thinking about the guy that you see at the gym more than you think about your husband. You want to change. Change is hard. You want to tell the truth. You want to tell the truth, but you have told so many little lies. You've fabricated so many little lies that telling the truth right now to the people you love the most, their respect and their trust for you, it goes down, it's diminished, or or telling the truth for you, it might actually cost you everything. It might cost you everything. You wanna be content with your life, but you can't help but look at your best friend's house and their job and their influence, and you you just envy it, you just want it, you wanna change and change is hard. Every time your, your boss walks in the room, you're throwing another coworker under the bus because you want to look good and you know you're going to feel bad about it later because you want to change and change is hard. So today we're going to focus on, on one question. We're going to focus on the question, does God's abundance have any power to help us change? If God truly is for us, if God truly is abundance, does abundant. Does that have any power to help us change? We're going to be camping out in three sentences that are found toward the beginning of a letter that a guy named Paul writes to another guy named Timothy, a younger guy. You can find this letter in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 14. If you have your Bible with you, this is in the second half of your Bible. It's between Thessalonians and Titus. So look for all the T's and 1 Timothy is in the middle of that. So the guy who writes this letter, his, his name is Paul. And when he writes this letter, he's a follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus. He loves Jesus so much that he's a church planner. He goes around to different areas and he plants churches. And one of the churches that he plants is in an area called Ephesus. 
Now, things don't go quite probably how Paul imagined they would. He learns, he learns that the leaders there, they're starting to spread false teaching. They're starting to spread false teaching. Does anybody like false teaching? Do you like fake news? Anybody like a Ponzi scheme? No, no, no. None of us like fake news. And Paul knows what all of us know. Paul knows that, that at its best, at its best, fake news, false teaching, it's absolutely worthless. But at its worst, at its worst, false teaching, fake news, it can harm people and it can hurt. And so Paul, knowing this, he's compelled to do something about it. He's compelled to send his young mentee named Timothy to Ephesus to confront the false teachers. So he, he sends him because he can't just stand by and do nothing about this. And because this is before the age of email and cell phones, after Paul sends Timothy, he follows it up with a letter. He follows it up with a letter that has more instruction about what it looks like to confront these leaders. And that's the letter that we're looking at today. So Paul, he sends Timothy to Ephesus and then he writes this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We're gonna come back to the, to the first part of that in just a little bit, but we're gonna zoom in on that second sentence where it says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Blasphemer, persecutor, violent man. As you can imagine, in my work here at Faith Church, every once in a while, I get to see job applications. And I have got to confess to you that when, when I receive a resume for a church planter, this is not what I expect to read. I don't expect to see this on the resume of a church planter. But if you're here and you've placed all your hope and trust in Jesus for this life and the life to come, do you remember what your life was like before that? Do you remember what your life was like before that? Because that's exactly what Paul's doing here. Paul is remembering and reflecting on, on what his life was like before Jesus. And Paul, Paul is not mincing words here. He is, he's not exaggerating. Paul was raised in a Jewish family. He received a, a master level education in Jewish law and in, in Jewish tradition. So Paul, Paul is this young, super intelligent guy when Jesus bursts onto the world scene. And Paul, Paul thinks that the early Christian movement is a threat to Judaism. Paul thinks this is a threat. This word blasphemer, it means to speak evil. It means to slander, to verbally rail against someone. When, when Paul says that he was a persecutor and a violent man, 
This isn't hyperbole. There was one time, there was this one time where Paul consented to the stoning of a man named Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Jesus before Paul was. And and Stephen was known for his wisdom and for his faith. And that angered Paul. That angered people like Paul. So Paul consents to his stoning. And then he stands there and he watches him get stoned. We don't have time to go into to Paul's whole narrative or, or look at exactly how violent he was. But if, if you're curious about that, then I would encourage you this week, find some time to read Acts 9. That will give you more of a glimpse of Paul's life. As Paul reflects on his life before Jesus, Paul names and he owns his sin. Paul names and he owns his sin. Instead of hiding his sin, Paul names it and he owns it. And I've got to tell you, this is gutsy. This is gutsy. He takes his worst moments and he puts them in writing. How many times have you not sent an email because you didn't want to put what you said in writing? But here's Paul. Paul puts his worst moments in writing. He's not defending what he's done. He's not justifying or rationalizing it. He's naming and he's owning his sin. He doesn't take the time to throw the guy who taught him Jewish law under the bus. He doesn't use his ink to pen about blaming his parents for where he is. He doesn't make it any more or any less than it is. Paul names and he owns his sin. And this, this is critical when it comes to our desire to change. Naming and owning our sin is is critical when it comes to our desire to change. Now here's the thing that, that some, if not all of us, need to be reminded of today. We need to hear that owning our sin, it is not for the purpose of shame. Owning your sin is not for the purpose of shame. That, that's false teaching. If someone's told you that, that's false. In Hebrews 12, we read this. We read, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that phrase? Do you hear that phrase, scorning? It's shame. In the hours leading up to the cross, in those hours, Jesus Jesus was spit on. He was mocked. He was abandoned by his friends. His clothes were torn. Being spit on and abandoned and mocked, that doesn't physically hurt. That shames. That shames. Shame whispers, what is my worth? Shame whispers, what do people think of me? Shame is felt. Shame questions our sense of of who we are, not just what we've done. 
That's what shame does. And Jesus, Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, he scorns shame. Jesus doesn't call the sinner worthless. He calls shame worthless. That's what Jesus does with shame. So, so in light of that, if naming and owning our, our sin isn't for shame, then, then what, what is it for? Owning sin promotes honesty, not shame. It promotes honesty. It's for the sake of honesty. It allows us to live with a clear conscience, and it keeps us grounded in reality, even when, even when we don't like that reality. It keeps us grounded there. Because the thing is, when we aren't honest about our sin, when we aren't honest about our sin, we can subtly start to deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't need God's grace. When we aren't honest about our sin, we start to deceive ourselves. And right there, right there is the playground where shame thrives. When we believe that we don't need grace, shame thrives. If we can't, if we don't own our, our sin, then there's a really good chance that our sin is owning us. And when our sin owns us, we become a prisoner to it. We become a prisoner to our sin when we, when we don't name and own it. So own your sin. Don't be a prisoner to it. It's for honesty, not for shame, not for shame. Let's keep looking at this sentence. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. When is the last time you saw a headline or a status update that says, I was wrong, I was wrong, I acted in ignorance and unbelief? Never, I have never seen that headline, I have never seen that status update. But Paul says it, Paul says it. Do you have a category for ignorance in your life? Paul shows us the path forward from our ignorance, and, and it's something that you might not expect. It's not what I expected. Paul shows us that the path forward from ignorance, it's humility. It's humility. Humility is this heart attitude that, that comes from seeing clearly who God is and who God says we are. That's where humility comes from. It's a modest view of oneself. It isn't concerned with saving face. Humility isn't concerned with saving face. Humility is more concerned. Its value is on authenticity more than perception. Humility values authenticity more, more than it values perception. And it's humility that allows Paul to acknowledge his ignorance and his unbelief, which then leads him to say, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word grace, that's a, a word that we all, that we all tend to, to use. We say it, we hear it. 
But it really does beg the question, what is the grace of our Lord? I'm gonna submit to you today that God's abundance is absolutely scandalous in our world. It is scandalous because it is so incredibly counter-cultural. And at the very core, at the core of this idea of abundance is grace. Grace simply is getting what we do not deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward us. It's his disposition of goodness toward us. And this, it goes against the very fabric of our everyday lives because our lives, our lives are screaming at us all the time that that you're only as good as what you just produced. You get exactly what you deserve. And if you didn't get it, it's because you didn't deserve it. We live in a world that says show up and prove yourself every single day. We live in a world of merit where praise, praise is earned. Performance and skills, that's what earn grades and award and, and even bonuses. We live in a world where the employee of the month, they get that parking spot at the front where everybody else has to drive by it while we head to the back of the lot to park. We live in a world that has a merit framework to it. Now, hear me. I'm not saying merit systems are bad. I actually think merit systems are good and that they have a place. They have a place, but their place is not. It's not in our relationship with God. And we have to be really careful because so much of our world does operate in a merit system. We have to be careful that we're not taking that and projecting it onto our relationship with God. We have to be careful that we don't start to subtly believe that we have to earn God's favor because I'll be honest, I can't think of anything more anxiety creating than believing that we have to earn God's love. That, that one false teaching, that one false belief would produce enough anxiety to paralyze us. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. Look at what Paul says to the Ephesian church about grace. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. You cannot take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. None of us can boast about it. Grace means that there is nothing, nothing that you or I can do to earn God's love. I have three sons. And over the years, they've been in these situations where the outcomes have high stakes for them. The outcomes have high stakes. There were high stakes at some of the wrestling matches we were at. There were high stakes when, when they were auditioning for the role in the musical that they desperately wanted. There were high stakes when they applied to their dream colleges and the jobs that they wanted. The stakes are high in these moments. And we have, we have this saying in our family, when the stakes are high, we look at each other and we say, I know, 
I know what's going on today. It means a lot to you. It means a lot. But nothing, nothing about who you are is on the line today. Nothing about who you are is on the line today. Because when the stakes seem high, when our, our circumstances are getting the best of us, we need things that ground us. We need things that ground us in a truth that's bigger than the circumstances that we're in. And I think, I think that's what Paul is doing here in this sentence when he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I think Paul's grounding us here. He's reminding us that we don't earn. We don't earn God's love. And we can be confident and secure that when we place all of our hope and trust in Jesus for this life and the life to come, we never again, never again, never again do we have to wonder if we have done enough to earn it. Most of us, most of us haven't done the same things that Paul has. Most of us haven't committed murder. And sometimes this comparison, this is the comparison that keeps us from naming and owning our sins. We say things like, I'm not as bad as that guy. I have not done what she has done. But comparison, comparison causes us to justify and to rationalize our sin instead of owning it. It causes us to justify and rationalize it instead of owning it. Comparing sin, comparing sin, it only serves our ego. It doesn't serve our soul. Do you recognize God's grace and mercy in your life? And has it changed you? Do you recognize it and has it changed you? There's a story in the Bible about a guy who owes the king 10,000 bags of gold. 10,000 bags. And he goes to his master and he asks for patience. And his master gives him mercy. He actually cancels the debt cancels the debt. Then this guy, he goes, and he runs into another man, another man who owes him a fraction of what he owed the king. And when he sees him, he grabs him and he chokes him. And he demands that that money is paid in that very moment. And when that guy asks for the same patience that the other guy had just gotten from his master, he has him thrown in prison. He has him thrown in prison. I think this story, it serves as a, a warning for all of us. If we're not careful, we can forget the grace and mercy that we've received, and we can choke out others. Maybe not physically. Maybe you look at yourself and say, I'm never going to choke someone. Maybe not physically, but we can start to choke out others. Do you recognize God's grace and mercy in your life? And has it changed you? And is it changing you? A few years ago, I had a friend, and this friend started to, to tell some of our other friends some things about me that weren't true. They were lying. To this day, to this day, I'm not sure what their motive was. I don't know if they truly misunderstood me. I don't know if they had malicious intent I don't know if there was something going on in, in their own ego and pride, but, but they lied. They told things about me that weren't true to our friends, and that hurt. 
What hurt even more was some of those friends believed the things that were said. It was one of the most painful times in my life. So painful. In that season, I almost walked away from people that I loved. I almost walked away. I almost walked away from work. From work and things that, that mattered to me deeply. Because it was a painful season. And by God's grace, by God's grace, he had people in my life, people in my life who were unwilling to let me justify and rationalize the sin, the anger that was grown in my own heart just because someone else had sinned against me. They walked with me. They held up mirrors. They asked me how my heart was. And over a period of time, a painful period of time, there finally came a day when I wept. I wept because I realized that I wasn't physically choking anyone. But in my heart, in my heart, I was starting to live like God's grace was free for me and for my sin, but not for them and their sin, because their sin hurt and it hurt me. Comparison, when we compare our sin, it only serves our ego, not our soul. Darkness, darkness wins when we either give in in those moments, we either give in, we walk away, or we get bitter. And as followers of Jesus, I think it's important that we know that we are not immune to this. Comparing sin, it only serves our ego, not our soul. When's the last time you were compelled to address something with, with someone? This happens, this happens to Paul. He's compelled to address the false teaching that's happening in Ephesus. When was the last time you were compelled? It's bound to happen. We see things in each other. And I would submit to you that, that how we address those things, how we address those things is just as important as addressing them. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that in addressing his concerns about false teaching, that Paul uses some of his ink, that he, he uses some of his letter to name his own sin and to recount God's grace in his life. Paul isn't walking around puffed up, arrogant, and proud in this moment. He's not seeing himself as better than other sinners. In being honest, and being honest and humble and owning his own sin, Paul actually gains. He gains trust and credibility. He doesn't lose it. It's at that place he gains it, and he models for us the true power of grace. We're back to the first sentence of this passage that we've been looking at. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul knows, Paul knows that everything, every single thing he's been given is a gift. And so as Paul reflects, he, he thanks God. In God's abundance, he not only gives Paul good work to do, but he also gives him the divine strength to do it. He gives him the work and the strength. This, this is God's abundance. Here's what I love about God. Even though Paul was sinful, even though Paul 
did sinful things, God showed Paul mercy and he gave the sinful man the opportunity to change. Be honest. Would you trust Paul? Would you give him a chance to lead at your church? Do you only focus on the the behaviors that people do and miss what's going on in their hearts? I love that God looks at Paul's heart, not just what he's done. Throughout this series, we have, we have seen these glimpses that, that an abundant life, it, it's bigger than just ourselves. Paul points out, he points us towards not only that grace is, is a gift and that it's free, he, he points out what grace is for. He points out its purpose. Living an abundant life is, is living a life of, of service. Paul writes, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Change, the change we desire, it happens at the intersection of honesty about sin and receiving God's grace. At this, at this intersection, we can ground in truth. And it's humility, not arrogance or insecurity, that paves the way. By God's grace, we, we can be honest. We can be honest. Because love doesn't lie, does it? Love doesn't lie. We can stop building our own kingdoms because love isn't self-seeking. We can be content because love doesn't envy. We can stop boasting because love isn't proud. Those are easy words to say. Those are hard words to live. And it is only at this intersection of being honest about our sin and receiving God's grace that we truly do have the power for the change that we want to see in our lives. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God God demonstrates his love. His love isn't neutral. His love is sacrificial. It's compassionate and it's merciful. His love is so personal. It's forgiving and it's unchanging. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you recognize? Do you see it? Do you recognize God's grace and his mercy in your life? And has it changed you? And is it, is it changing you? Each week, each week, we, we get the opportunity to, to hear some of your stories. We, we get to read your prayer request. We get to, to read about the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you. We all grapple with this human experience of what does it look like to live this life and desire to follow Jesus. This next song, the song that we're gonna listen to, it reminds us, it reminds us that we're not alone. We're not alone in our failure. 
We're not alone in the, the deep, painful losses that are very real in this life. And it also reminds us that we have hope. We have hope that by God's grace, He can make it all beautiful.